bring with us this morning. It seems to me such a, a timely message for us as we've got to the point where we've got to in our teaching series with Esther. And don't worry if you're not up to speed with the story of Esther. I'm going to show you a little video clip in a moment which will catch you up with the story so far. But isn't the work of safe families so like we've heard in the story with Esther? Esther, a Jew who didn't go around boasting about her Jewishness and telling everybody about it, but just quietly worked behind the scenes. And as you'll see today in the story, when the moment is right, when the time is right, Esther reveals her Jewishness and she speaks about the hope that she has. What a beautiful picture of the ministry that Safe Families are involved with. So we've been on this whistle-stop tour uh, through the book of Esther. We're looking at it two chapters at a time. So here comes a little video reminder of where we've got to so far in our story. The book of Esther, it's one of the more exciting and curious books in the Bible. The story is set over 100 years after the Babylonian exile of the Israelites from their land. And while some Jews did return to Jerusalem, remember Ezra and Nehemiah, many did not. And so the book of Esther is about a Jewish community living in Susa, the capital city of the ancient Persian Empire. And the main characters in this story are two Jews, Mordecai and then his niece Esther. And then there's the king of Persia, who's something of a drunken pushover in this story. And then there's the Persian official Haman, the cunning villain. The book opens with the king of Persia throwing two elaborate banquet feasts that last a total of 187 days. And it's all for the grandiose purpose of displaying his greatness and splendor. On the last day of the banquet feast, he's really drunk, and he demands that his wife, Queen Vashti, appear at the party to show off her beauty. She refuses, and so in a drunken rage, the king deposes Vashti and makes the silly decree that all Persian men should now be the masters of their own homes. Then he holds a beauty pageant because he wants to find a new queen. This is like a really bad soap opera. But it's right here that we're introduced to Esther and Mordecai. Esther hides her Jewish identity and enters the beauty pageant and wins. And the king is so obsessed with Esther that he elevates her to become the new queen of Persia. Now after this, and even more serendipitous, is the fact that Mordecai just happens to overhear two royal guards plotting to murder the king. And so he informs Esther, who in turn informs the king, and Mordecai gets credit for saving the king's life. Now right here from the beginning, God's not mentioned anywhere, but this all seems providentially ordered. What is it that God's up to? You have to keep reading. We're next introduced to Haman, who's not actually a Persian. He's called an Agagite. He's a descendant of the ancient Canaanites. Remember 1 Samuel chapter 15. The king elevates Haman to the highest position in the kingdom, and he demands that everybody kneel before Haman. Well, when Mordecai sees Haman, he refuses to kneel, which of course fills Haman with rage. And when he finds out that Mordecai's Jewish, Haman successfully persuades the king to enact this crazy decree to destroy all of the Jewish people. And to decide the date of the Jews' annihilation, Haman rolls the dice. A die is called pur in Hebrew. Tuck that away for later. Eleven months later, on the 13th of Adar, all the Jews will die. Haman and the king then have a drinking banquet to celebrate their really horrible decision. So the focus now turns to Mordecai and Esther, who are the only hope for the Jewish people. They make a plan that Esther is going to reveal her Jewish identity to the king and ask him to reverse the decree. But approaching the king without a royal request is, according to Persian law, an act worthy of death. 
So in a key statement, Mordecai, he's confident that even if Esther remains silent, that deliverance for the Jews will arrive from another place. And then Mordecai wonders aloud. He says, who knows? Maybe you've become queen for this very moment. Esther responds with bravery, and she purposes to go to the king with her amazing words, if I perish, I perish. Now, in what unfolds, we watch the ironic reversal of all of Haman's evil plans. So Esther hosts the king and Haman at a first banquet, and she says that she wants to make a special request of both of them at an exclusive banquet the following day. So Haman leaves the banquet totally drunk, and he sees Mordecai in the street. He fumes with anger, and he orders that a tall stake be built so that Mordecai can be impaled upon it in the morning. It seems like things can't get any worse for the Jews and for Mordecai, but all of a sudden, the story pivots. It just so happens that night, the king, he can't sleep, and he has the royal chronicles read to him for good bedtime reading, and he just happens to hear about how Mordecai had saved the king's life. He had totally forgotten. So in the morning, Haman enters to request Mordecai's execution, and the king in that moment orders Haman to honor Mordecai publicly for saving his life. So now Haman has to lead Mordecai around the city on a royal horse, telling everyone to praise him. Now this moment in the story, it's a pivot for the whole book. It begins Haman's downfall and Mordecai's rise to power. Watch how this works. There you go. Isn't that brilliant? The Bible Project. I thoroughly commend it to you. You'll find videos on just about every single book and theme uh, in Scripture. Well, the opening verse of uh, Esther chapter 5, which is where we're anchored, anchored today, sets the scene and the gravity of the situation that Esther is facing as we continue with her story. Esther and her servants have been busy praying and fasting for three days, and then the moment comes. The moment comes when she has to confront the most powerful man on the earth with the most audacious request. In this moment, she is quite literally risking her life. And the first thing I want us to see in the story this morning is Esther's boldness. Not her B-A-L-D-ness, but her B-O-L-D-ness. She wasn't like me. She was bold, not bold. Verse 1, Esther put on her royal robes, it says. She put on her royal robes. Literally translated, it means she put on her royalty. I really like that phrase. Esther put on her royalty. She stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters whilst the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. So we're here, we have Esther. She's standing in a waiting room, which is both a literal and a hugely symbolic description of where she finds herself at this moment in her life. She stood in a physical waiting room, the inner court to the king's quarters, and this is a life or a death moment. Suspense fills the air. Can you imagine how nervous Esther must have felt in this moment? Can you imagine how much adrenaline must have been coursing around her body? Will she live or will she die? Will I still be alive in five minutes' time? Esther knows for sure that if the king's scepter is held out, then she'll live. She knows that if it drops, then she's going to be toast. Now, we should remind ourselves, of course, that this was no empty threat. The king would have had guards around him who would have been only too happy to follow every single command of the king. As we saw in that little video, the king has a bit of a track record for dispatching his wives. Why should Esther be any different to Vashti? 
Now, I don't know about you at school, but you, were you a goody, goody two-shoes or were you one of the naughty ones? Some of us were the naughty ones. I, of course, was a good person. But I do remember the feeling once of standing outside the headmaster's uh, office ready to receive my judgment. Would it be the cane or would it be the ruler? Would it be detention or would it be suspension? In any, any case, did I have the pillow? Did I have the cushions in just the right place? Now, I know these days we're not allowed to talk about such things and no such punishment would ever come to a child. I was a good boy, but there was one occasion when I remember a moment like this of waiting outside the head teacher's office. And it was the occasion when I bit Mrs. Carter, who was the dinner lady. I actually bit her. I was only 14, so it seemed perfectly reasonable. <laughs> Mrs. Carter was one of the, the dinner ladies, and I can't remember why, but for some reason she upset me, and I was sent to the head teacher's office. I remember the fear. I remember the nerves, the anxiety of what, of what was going to come my way. And the throne room would have been an intimidating place for anyone to enter. The whole point of the king's palace was that it centered on the throne. The whole place was designed to make the king the focal point and the center of everyone's attention. If the architecture in this place could speak, then the architecture would say, take care, would say, take care any one of you who stood in the waiting room. Because when you step into the king's throne, you're going to discover that he is mighty. That's what Esther is experiencing, visually experiencing as she walks in. She knows this is a life or a death moment. And I think you just have to admire Esther's boldness in this moment. It's one thing, isn't it, to know the right thing to do, but it's quite another thing to actually have the faith to actually do it. Maybe you've discovered that to be true from your own, from your own life. Doing the right thing is not always the easy thing, but doing the right thing is always right. Better to fail, isn't it, at doing the right thing than to win by doing the wrong thing. And it's when we find ourselves in these moments and these circumstances in life, we need to know, Holy Spirit, boldness and conviction, even a nudge from God to make our feet move forward into the things that God has for us. And here in this moment, Esther is walking with courage, she's walking with trust, she's walking with unshakable faith, and if her life experience has been anything like mine in these moments, then I didn't necessarily have all of those things before I walked into the circumstance I would immediately uh, face. As I'm there in the waiting room, I'd be racked with nerves and fear and trepidation, but the moment that the doors open... God is incredibly good to us and gives us the confidence that we need to continue to stand for him. Mission impossible becomes mission possible when God is in control and when God is empowering even the most dire of circumstances. Well, luckily for Esther in this moment, in fact, not luckily because that discredits the hand of God in this moment, by the providence of God, an all-powerful God, the king, who remembers Esther's husband, happens to be in a really good mood at the moment she leaves the waiting room and goes into the throne room. He allows her to live, even though she's got the audacity to approach him without consent. But the story's actually even better than that. Verse 3 of chapter 5, the king asks, and what is your desire, Queen Esther? 
I think it's really significant in this moment that the king refers to her as Queen Esther and not just Esther. I wonder why. Was it because she'd put her royalty on while she was in the waiting room? Perhaps it was. What do you want, Queen Esther? Ask and it will be yours. Even half of my kingdom I'm willing to give to you. Now, that's a good offer, isn't it? It's an offer that's too good uh, to refuse. And my guess is that it was an offer that probably exceeded Esther's wildest dreams. But maybe we shouldn't be surprised by an offer like that, because as we keep discovering in this story, God is the God who's at work weaving together all the details of this story, even down to the emotions of a pagan king, even though he doesn't know it, who is actually serving the purposes of God in this moment. You see, Esther is discovering something in this moment that we'd all be uh, well served to discover. Esther is discovering that her hope does not rest in the affairs of this world, but instead her hope rests in the goodness and the promises of God. And if we're children of God, if we've become followers of Jesus, then that's true for us as well this morning. Our hope does not rest in the affairs of this world, no matter whether they be good or whether they be challenging, our hope rests in the goodness and in the promises of God. But before Esther gets to discover all that, she has to endure what each of us have to endure in life, the waiting room. And it's a place of anxiety and it can be a place of worry. But Esther's willingness to endure the weight and the anxiety of that way, I think actually reveals the value of the thing that she is waiting for. You will not wait in life unless something is worth waiting for. That's the reason why people never, ever queue in McDonald's. It's the reason why people will queue in Wagamama's, but not in McDonald's. And I wonder if you've ever found yourself in that place, not queuing in McDonald's, but in a place of anxious waiting, a place where you're full of fear, a place where you're full of trepidation, a place where you know that a crucial life decision is just on the other side of the door in front of you, but actually you've got no control whatsoever over the outcome of that decision. It can be a place, and if you've been there, you'll know this, of faith-crippling doubt and anxiety. But it seems to me that the journey of life, and especially the journey of faith, is full of waiting room experiences just like that. We all face seasons of waiting. They're inescapable, and we may not have as much on the line as Esther did in this moment, but waiting is always a challenge. And I wonder if you're waiting for something today. You know, some of us are waiting in the hope that our illness is going to disappear and it will be restored to good health. Some of us today are navigating a career path where we require more experience than we do education and it takes time to get that experience ready for the next breakthrough. Some of us are in a place of waiting for broken relationships and broken bridges in those relationships to be repaired. Maybe today you're longing for God to move in a particular situation or a circumstance. Life can feel like a great big waiting room. And I wonder if that's true in your life today. Can I encourage you to continue to hope in Jesus even as you wait? In the waiting room, Mordecai's words to Esther from chapter 4 a few weeks ago must have been rattling around in her mind. Do you remember Mordecai said to her, maybe you've come to such a royal position for such a time as this. 
in times of waiting, when we find ourselves in a time of need, when we know loss and when we're weak, the challenge is to cling on to the promise of God with both hands. And if you can't hang on with both hands, then cling on with your fingertips. You see, times of waiting are never, ever wasted in the economy of God. For the whole time that we're waiting, God is growing our faith. For the whole time that we're waiting for God to move, He's preparing us ready for when His timing is absolutely perfect. And yes, these can be times of incredible anxiety, but they're also times of preparation. Maybe you've heard the saying, until God opens the next door, then praise Him in the hallway. There's a challenge even in our waiting and our anxiety and our worry to continue praising God until the door opens. You see, God's timing is always perfect. So surely it's better to wait and have things fall into place perfectly than to rush and have things fall apart. You know, I suspect that Esther in this moment didn't fully realize that she was about to change the course of history. She probably hadn't realized that our whole nation were dependent upon her presenting herself before the king. But the thing that really stands out to me about Esther in this moment is her faithful willingness to seek wise counsel coupled with her obedience to boldly do what she felt was right in the perfect timing of God despite the danger that she faced. Remember those words from Esther, if I perish, I perish. Well, not only did Esther not perish, but she single-handedly saved generations of Jews from genocide. And it leaves me with a question, what might God be preparing you for at the moment in your waiting? Can I encourage you to keep holding the hand of God in your worry and perhaps in your anxiety? I wonder if you've been waiting for something for yourself or for a friend or a family member for an awfully long time. Would you trust in God's perfect timing and in the promises that he's made in your life? You see, waiting can be really hard, can't it? But when the time is right, God will give us the courage to step forward with Holy Spirit boldness into the unknown. Do you recall the words that God spoke to Moses as he was about to, sorry, to Joshua as he was about to pick up the mantle from Moses? God said to Joshua, as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and be courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Why? Here comes the promise. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. That's a promise for some of us this morning in our waiting. God is with you in your waiting, but he'll be with you as you step forward beyond the door that's in front of you. I'm so grateful to Carrie who emailed me during the week and said, I think I've got a testimony that I need to share. Have a listen to what Carrie's got to say. Because it's a timely reminder from somebody that we know of all I've just described. I wanted to share a quick story with you today about how a particular verse in Esther completely changed the way I looked at life. So I've wrestled with anxiety all of my life. I just haven't always known that that's what it was. As a shy teenager, the world suddenly felt so big and I felt very little. I've always had a passion in my heart that I wanted to be a physio and my mind was set on the future, but there are so many hoops that I needed to jump through to get there. I needed qualifications and experiences that I would need to work really hard to get. So doubt very quickly set into my mind, those what if thoughts, what if things didn't go the way that I wanted them to. 
Around this time, there was a musical in Manchester called Love, Esther. It was based on the Book of Esther and my cousin got us tickets. There was one particular song which was based on Esther chapter 4 verse 14 and the song was called For This Very Moment and it's when Esther realises that perhaps she was put in this particular point in the kingdom for such a time as this. She realises that she has to respond by accepting uncertainty of what might happen, step out in faith and take action by doing what she knows was right. That one verse shaped a huge part of my teenage years after that. It brought me back to the present moment and instead of rushing ahead and worrying about the future. It replaced the worries of what if this goes wrong with what if this is why I'm in this exact moment for this exact time. And over the years it's given me confidence to do or say specific things in specific moments that I would have totally otherwise run away from, especially as a painfully shy teenager. So I just wanted to share this testimony of the impact that this verse has had on my life in case there's anyone else out there thinking that I'm too shy for God to use or who finds themselves wishing that they were in a different time or a different place. God is with you today. God cares about you specifically and maybe, just maybe, he's brought you to this place at this time for this very moment. What a great reminder, God is with you in the waiting room, and time is not wasted in the waiting room. God is preparing you for what he has for you. In verse 4 of chapter 5, Esther makes this request to the king, and to be honest, it's a rather cheeky request, really, and in fact, it could even be described as deception, but maybe we can forgive her for that. As she steps from the waiting room into the presence of king, the king, she's quite literally putting on greatness by standing. She's not standing for herself, but she's standing for her people. And actually, that's what great leadership should look like, isn't it? Great leaders use their voice and they use their influence for people who have neither of those things. Leadership should never, ever be a platform by which you boast about your own greatness and you glory in yourself. What a contrast Esther is in this moment to the king and to Haman. Esther leverages her position as queen for the betterment of those who she is seeking to serve. Maybe that's a word in season for some of the world leaders that we encounter today. But from verse 4 onwards, and I'm going to read this in a moment, Esther invites Haman, the prime minister, and, her, and the king, who was her husband, remember, to a couple of banquets. And the invitation, rather cleverly, is kind of stroking the ego of these two men. You see, both of these men are absolutely stuffed with narcissistic conceit. They're arrogant, they're proud, they're full of themselves. And Esther says to them, hey, my king, why don't you come with me and have a nice dinner? I'm your beautiful wife. Come and eat with me. And why don't you eat with me, your beautiful wife, in front of your very important friend, Haman? And in a sense here, Esther is kind of showing an, an exaggerated amount of regard to the king so that she can build up some credit in her account, ready for in a few minutes' time or a few days' time when she makes a withdrawal, then in essence is going to say to the king, you've made a terrible mistake and I'm going to tell you you're wrong. Now, if there's one thing I've discovered about narcissists is they don't like being told that they're wrong. And that's what Esther is about to do. Well, to cut a very long story short, for the rest of chapter 5 and 6, God gives this man, Haman, who we're going to focus on now, uh, another man who had some serious humility issues, plenty of rope to hang himself on. And in this, we see loads of boasting. I'm going to read from verse 5 of chapter 5. It says this, Haman went out that day 
happy and in high spirits. But when he saw Mordecai at the king's gate and observed that he neither rose nor showed fear in his presence, he was filled with rage against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and he went home. Here comes the boasting. Calling together his friends and Zeresh, his wife, Haman boasted to them about his vast wealth, about his many sons and all the ways that the king had honored him and how he'd been elevated above the other nobles and officials. And that's not all, Haman added. I'm the only person that Queen Esther has invited to accompany the king to the banquet which she gave. And she's invited me along with the king tomorrow. But all this gives me no satisfaction as long as I see that Jew Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. His wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Have a pole set up reaching us to the height of 50 cubits and ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai impaled on it. Then go with the king to the banquet and enjoy yourself. This suggestion delighted Haman and he had the pole set up. It's gruesome stuff, isn't it? You see, Haman's pride and his malice for Mordecai are fully on display here, and they're an ugly marriage, aren't they? Pride and malice. Haman here is marinating marinating in the juices of his own self-importance, and all the time his malice is busy pressure-cooking away. What a lethal cocktail these two things are. And I want to suggest this morning there are two things we need to watch out for in our own lives. Malice is that deep-seated hatred that actually turns into delight whenever we see somebody that we dislike suffer. Isn't that twisted? That such a negative emotion can turn into something semi-positive when we see another person suffering. Malice can never, ever forgive. Malice can never, ever um, accept anything but revenge. And we need to be really careful because as happened with Haman can happen for us. If we don't keep malice and revenge in check and unforgiveness in check, it can end up dominating the whole of our lives. And that's what happens to Haman in the story. He shoots at his enemy, but the ammunition from his own gun ricochets and ends up wounding himself instead. And what happens to Haman can be a picture of what will happen to us if we allow these things, especially unforgiveness, to consume our lives. But again, in this story, we see this God-ordained reversal of fortunes. And in the end, Mordecai gets to to reign on Haman's pride parade. And you know, I know from my own life that issues of pride and humility are a daily wrestle. It's a daily wrestle. And therefore, perhaps it's no surprise that in James chapter 4, verse 10, it says, humble yourselves before the Lord, and then he will lift you up. Well, in the end, Haman ends up becoming the humiliated humiliator, and everything that he had planned for Mordecai becomes the very thing he has to endure himself. Well, a quick spoiler for a couple of weekends' time when we get to chapter 7. Haman does indeed end up getting impaled on the very stake that he commissioned for Mordecai. But as I finish, there's something I want us to see, and I think this is absolutely breathtaking. Mordecai was sentenced to death But instead of death, he's raised to life and the enemy is destroyed. What appears to be hopeless and doom and gloom ends up getting reversed into hope and into greatness. The enemy was made to proclaim the greatness of Mordecai. And I wonder if that sounds like a familiar story. The one who was sentenced to death 
instead of death, is raised to life and the enemy gets destroyed. Here's a snapshot of the gospel. It's a snapshot of the good news of Jesus Christ. You see, we once were lost in our sin, and because of our sin, we were under the sentence of death. We were the ones who deserved the penalty of death. We were the ones with no light and with no hope, but God sends his son. And when God sends his son, there's a reversal of fortunes. Jesus dies on the cross to save us. Darkness gets swallowed up into light. And when Jesus dies on the cross, it looks like everything is lost. But on the third day, Jesus rises from the dead and Satan is humiliated. That's the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And all the time in this story, God is moving to have his will accomplished. Jesus humbled himself and gives himself to death. He raises Jesus into new life and exalts him into the highest place so that you and I can have a hope and a future. That's the gospel, and that's the good news, and I commend it to you. I wonder if you believe that God can reverse your fortunes from death into eternal life, that Jesus can deal with your sin and make you perfect before a heavenly Father. Our God is a good God, and he's made a way for us. Satan is defeated, and we have the promise of new life. I want to read to you some words from Ephesians chapter 2, and with this I finish, because this tells the story of my story, and maybe it's your story too. It says, once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. You used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers of the unseen world. He's the spirit that's at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us, every single one of us, without exception, used to live that way, passionately following the desires and the inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subjected to God's anger, just like everyone else, but God. But God is so rich in mercy, and he loves us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Jesus from the dead. It's by grace that you have been saved. And you can be saved today by simply trusting Jesus as your Lord and your Savior. This truth can be yours today. So many of us know this truth already. Would you cling on to the promises of God, especially when you're in the waiting room? He understands your anxiety and he knows your worry. It's okay. But maybe today's the day when you accept this truth for yourself. It takes a single step of saying, Jesus, I invite you to be my Lord and Savior trusting you with my life. I want to lead us in prayer just for a moment. Give us a moment perhaps to respond this morning to what we've heard. Lord, thank you that in this story of um, Esther, we see a snapshot of all that Jesus came to do, a shadow of the real thing. And Lord, I thank you that your grace is sufficient for us, that where there was no way, you've made a way. Where because of our sinfulness, what seemed impossible has become possible because of the death and the resurrection of Jesus, we thank you. And Lord, this morning, for those of us who know you and love you already, we just surrender our lives afresh and say, thank you for being my saviour, Jesus. Thank you that you've made a way for me.
but maybe this morning you don't yet know Jesus, just pray this really simple prayer in your own heart. Lord Jesus, I trust you today as my Lord and Saviour. I'm trusting you for the forgiveness of my sins. Thank you that where there was no hope, you have made hope. I choose to follow you in the days ahead. Amen. Lord, we want to thank you today that that simple prayer changes our eternity. We worship you. We worship you because you're a God who's shaping us and molding us and changing us ever more into the likeness of your son, Jesus. We're going to sing a song. It's a song of response, a, a prayer. I invite you to stand with me as we sing it. It's a song of invitation that simply says to God, I've trusted in you now. Shape me, mold me. You're the potter and I'm the clay. The clay doesn't tell the potter what to do but the clay allows itself to be shaped by the potter. Let's stand together as we sing. Beautiful Lord, wonderful Savior, I know for sure all of my days are held in your hand, grafted into
thank you, Father, that we can offer ourselves to you, whether that's for the first time or for the hundred and first time, Lord. We ask that you would take us, that you would mold us and use us and fill us. Lord, we give you our lives. And we ask, Father, that you would bless us. In the precious name of Jesus. You know, a thought I had as we were singing that song, the clay doesn't have to do it himself. The clay doesn't mold itself into a pot. The clay doesn't become a beautiful sculpture. All the clay has to do, all we have to do is say yes. To be open to what the potter wants to do in and through us. Which is why it's a, a real... All we have to do is to be open to God's spirit because he is the one with all the resources. He is the one that wants to work through us. We've seen God's father, father heart. We've seen his hand this morning. We've seen Jesus revealed through the pages of the Old Testament. We've seen that wonderful promise that we can be used by him to touch other people's lives. So our blessing as we leave this place is one that I've adapted from 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 9. I ask that God may bless us abundantly as he is able, so that in all things, at all times, having all that we need from him, we, we will abound in every good work. It's his work, not our work. So may we be filled with his spirit as we recognize him with us, whether that's in the waiting room or whether wherever we go this week, he calls us to love everyone we meet and to bring them that good news that we've heard about this morning and that so many of us believe that we can be forgiven. We, we have a hope. God bless us, each one of us, this morning as we leave. Please don't forget, there is no service here at 11 o'clock. You'll be on your own if you come. Our live stream will begin at 9.15, so you need to get up a little earlier if you want to join us. Or why not come to Headlands, if you feel able, to join us in the open air there, just north of Ringwood, at 11 o'clock. God be with us all. Do have a great rest of your weeks.